Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you here. Um, if you will, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, that will be our primary text today, but I think you all understand that we'll have several passages leading up to that. And so if you want to be ready to move fast between some passages, as you well know, uh, we often take a theological topic on the first Sunday, and I teach as best I can the whole counsel of Scripture on that topic. Uh, that's not to say that we don't do theology on other Sundays, but on first Sunday, rather than do a chapter-by-chapter chapter study, we try to pick one key thing and say, this is something we need to study and see what God has to say throughout the Word on it. Uh, as we introduce this, you all might well know that there is an issue in a special election coming up this week, that is August 8th, uh, called Issue 1, and it is designed to increase the amount of votes it will take in order to add something to Ohio's Constitution. I will tell you, I believe that this is legal for me to say this, but even if it's not, I don't care because it is just that I say it. I think that this particular law needs to pass, and I'm encouraging us to vote for it uh, for two reasons. One, biblically, God has historically ruled through laws rather than through democratic process. That is not to say that there's not value in democratic process, but the issue is a people are safer when they are run when they're governed by laws as opposed to the whims of the people. You might know that at the federal level, it takes something like 66% of a vote, and there's even more things going on beyond that, in order to add something to our Constitution. Currently in Ohio, it takes 50% of the votes plus one in order for something to pass. That creates a problem because it means that the minorities of any kind of an issue are always going to be the victims. I will tell you right now, um, I like to say democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner, right? We have to be governed by laws rather than by the whims of the people. That's not to say there's not room within laws for a democratic process at times, but the issue is governance should be by law, and as we're going to see today, it should be in accordance with God's law. All right, so if you want to uh, scan the QR code, or you can go to our website uh, and then click on the sermons menu, and it'll take you to the notes here. Either way, I will encourage you, get the notes today, either from the QR code here or go directly to the website, because we're going to cover a lot of things, including some good old-fashioned history that's going to help you in how you respond to people and you give an answer. Cool? All right, here's the other thing that you need to know. Um, the, uh, the issue one is designed to make it harder to add something to our Ohio State Constitution. And you might know that in November, unless issue one passes, there is a radical pro-baby murder bill in play. And I would argue, based on the language of that, as we're going to talk about earlier, it is also probably a pro-child mutilation bill. It's a little bit fuzzier on that, but if they interpret it as I fear they will, uh, this is going to open the door for a lot of things. People do not maybe fully understand that there are several outside state groups trying to push this through because they know that Ohio is a battleground state on the issue of abortion, and they're trying to test this process here because if they can codify abortion into law here, it's going to be a big problem because they're going to go everywhere else to do it. This is their this is their ground where they're going to prove, so they're going to try to prove it. We are the tip of the spear, 
And I will just speak plainly, brothers and sisters, as Christians, as people of God, it is our job to stand up to it, even if it was only for Ohio, if it was only for one kid. But the reality is the entirety of our nation is looking at us on this issue right now, and we need to hold the line. All right, so because in November they're going to push something really, really bad. Now, hopefully that sets the stage for why this is important. I want to talk a little bit about some history in our intro here. Uh, many of you might know that um, our United States was started in kind of a unique way. Um, if you ever get the chance to read the book Slaying Leviathan, it gives a wonderful history of how the Reformation led to our faithful country starting. There's a lot of things in between, a lot of wonderful things, but you will often hear people refer to a, quote, separation of church and state as it relates to the United States. Have you all heard this? Yes, you've heard it. Um, here's something that's key, and I, I just feel like we need to explain this because so many, especially many evangelical Christians, completely misunderstand this. First of all, in the Establishment Clause of the United States Constitution, in the First Amendment, we have this phrase. A little side note, we don't have the phrase separation of church and state. We do have this phrase. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, something that you should know, at this time, most of the states, or that would be most of the colonies in the United States, colonies that became states, had state religions. Did you know this? We had state religions. So there were certain states that had a particular Christian denomination that was the recognized religion of that state. Real thing, not joking around about that. So the idea for our nation was, hey, are we going to make everyone into, I don't know, Quakers? Are we going to make everyone into Presbyterians? Are we going to make everyone into Baptists? And we realized that like, hey, we are all Christians here, at least all of our states were, were states that recognized a state religion that was a Christian denomination, but at the national level, they said, hey, it's going to be a problem if we make it, hey, we're going to all be Presbyterians, because historically that's created problems for faithful brothers in Christ who were Baptists that didn't want to sprinkle their babies um, and wanted to do believer's baptism, and sometimes that could relate to some persecution, and we don't want to create a crisis of conscience because the church is enforcing a particular denomination. Here's what's interesting, though. The idea was that we were Christian the whole way through. The issue was, are we going to establish a particular denomination? right? So that's why when it says Congress shall make no, no, no law respecting an establishment of religion, the idea was not, hey, we're not going to let the church be involved. The idea was, we are going to let brothers and sisters in Christ worship freely in their various Christian denominations. Making sense so far? You can understand, though, that if you have a look at how many really influential Presbyterians were at play, uh, some of the Baptists were going to be getting nervous. Because of the, well, this is another important thing, of the 55 constitutional congressional members, 50 of them were part of confessing churches. Confessing meaning in order to be a part of that church, you had to agree to that statement of faith. Westminster Confession, London Baptist Confession, whatever, faithful confessions. 50 of the 55 agreed to those, which meant 50 of the 55 were faithful brothers in Christ, affirming the same kind of statements we would. All right? Only five were not Orthodox Christians, and what's interesting is they still seem to affirm some form of Christianity, which is really interesting, even though I'd say not a faithful brother, but all of them, including Benjamin Franklin, who was the only one who called himself a deist, even that guy was always like, hey, we should pray when we get together, right? 
He wasn't a very good deist. Later on, he seemed to reject deism. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But so this is interesting, though. The Danbury Baptist Con uh, Convention, Danbury Baptist Association, wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson because they were kind of worried that just maybe, I don't know, the Presbyterians or somebody else would kind of take charge and we'd have a state religion that would make it illegal to be a Baptist. So Thomas Jefferson writes to them in his, we call it the letter to the uh, Danbury Baptist Association on January 1st, 1802, and he essentially says, don't worry, guys. And this is where he uses the phrase, building a wall. He's talking about the establishment clause we just mentioned, that building a wall of separation between church and state. Notice the language. If you want to go back and read it, I recommend it. The language is, guys, don't worry, because there is a wall protecting the church from the state. The issue was not, we need a wall to protect the state from the church. That wasn't the issue at all. The issue was, we need a wall to protect the church from the state so the state doesn't get involved in business they shouldn't. The same people who were writing that, keep in mind, cited the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book at the establishment of our nation's constitution. You guys recognize this. The idea was not, oh no, we can't have Christian religion in here. The idea was, we need to make sure our brothers in Christ are free to worship and the state is not forcing, forcing a particular type of worship. But there was no idea in which the church could not influence or the Christianity could not influence. In fact, everybody agreed that we were Christian, at least adjectivally, as a nation. A little other side note that's worth bringing about. Um, there was a, people don't realize this, but there was a Supreme Court decision in 1892 that recognized in the majority opinion that the, the nation of the United States was in fact a Christian nation. Now we say this in an adjectival sense. This doesn't mean that they're the new, we're the new Israel, that we are somehow, that because you're here, you're all saved. But the idea was we're Christian. In an adjectival sense, for crying out loud, look at all of our laws, look at our, all of our history, this is what we are. Now you might then understand, and this is what I'm getting at, that when we established our country, it was being established on Deuteronomic civil law. Things that God wrote down in scripture, in his law, and the people who were establishing our constitution said, let's have that. So things like the right to personal property, things like the, you can't be at risk of double jeopardy, things like you need two witnesses to confirm something, um, all of that stuff comes out of the law of God in the Old Testament. And in the new, side note. All right? And you might understand, so you might understand then that if we look at the history of our nation, we've had a couple of centuries plus now in which people have been clamoring to get to this nation where there is opportunity, where your rights are protected, where you can worship freely, because people love to come where there are just laws. Now, as you all know, as I have said many times, our nation is no longer functioning in accordance with its constitutional laws, for the most part. Although we've been having some wins in the courts, we need to recognize that there is effectively a fourth branch of government, that is the federal offices and appointees, and those people are making decisions and creating mandates that are absolutely outside of their law. Um, this is why it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, because Congress was who was supposed to be making the laws. So when there is a mandate forcing churches not to meet, notice it's not going through the natural process that we have designed. This is how they're getting away with stuff. And this is why, a little side note, we need to get rid of those federal agencies. 
which I know sounds like something completely impossible, but brothers and sisters, it can be done, and we need to pray for it, because tyranny has been established through our federal offices. It's a whole other conversation. We're not going to get into that yet. What we're going to do is we're going to compare the American War for Independence, which I don't like to call a revolution, because it's more of a reformation, compare that with what was happening in France. Some other things, you guys know that the, the revolution in France happened just a few years after the American War for Independence. Uh, some things were different there, though. Whereas our founding fathers were pointing to scripture and saying, we got to use this as our basis. In France, they actually rejected all of the Christian vestments, took them out of the Temple of Notre Dame, and had a ceremony a few days later where they established what they called the Cult of Reason. They brought a woman in there who was an actress slash opera singer slash maybe some other things that were less than savory, that's a little unclear. And they decorated her up, they carried her in in a litter, they put various like statues of enlightenment thinkers around, and they said, this is going to be our cult of reason. This is our goddess of liberty. And they decided we're going to worship this rather than God. And it was a very clear, very open rejection of God and of his law. And so they actually chanted, they sang this, they said, Come, holy liberty, dwell in the temple, become the goddess of the French people. Think about that. In Notre Dame Cathedral, in God's own, like, and I recognize, like, we are the house of God, whatever, but in a building designed for the worship of God, they came in, rejected God, took out all of the Christian vestments, and brought in pagan vestments and said, No, 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 goddess of reason is going to be our goddess. It spread very quickly. There were other kind of forms of this kind of belief system that rejected God. And interestingly enough, it went away quickly, though, too, because what happened in the French Revolution was what was called the Reign of Terror, where there was no law, contrary to the American War for Independence, where we could point to the Deuteronomic Law. We could even point to historical record of, like, the Magna Carta and other things. No, no, no. The French Revolution believed in liberty, fraternity, and equality. And so the idea was, if you have more than me, you are my enemy. Does that sound familiar, by the way? And so the idea of the French Revolution was, oh my, this guy's an enemy because oh, he's got a little bit more than me, or I think he was too chummy. And so you have this thing that starts at the beginning of it with even a king, King Louis, saying, hey, you know what? The people really are getting treated a little bit bad. Let's work something out. Guess what? They killed him anyway. And so they went through multiple changes within about 10 years, multiple constitutional changes, multiple changes in government. And at the end of it, a guy named Napoleon said, this is complete disorder. I'm going to go and bring order. And he did so through the process of tyranny. It began with a rejection of authority, including God's authority. It ended with tyranny because that's how it works. If you want to compare these two things, the American War for Independence, and I'm not pretending like America is without its problems, but it started with a foundation of biblical principles, and it has led to peace and prosperity like nothing that has been seen in all of history. The French Revolution started with a rejection of God, and it ended with uncanny amounts of bloodshed and ultimate tyranny that subjected them to things as bad or worse than what they had before. Sometimes I want to say, choose modern man, which way shall you go? Because this is what we're up against. So, let me just speak very clearly. The church and state relationship is an important one. We as Christians have a duty to advance the kingdom through the gospel. That is our primary duty, brothers and sisters. Please don't think that political activism is our primary goal today. 
But let me just tell you, it should be a goal. Uh, the second thing is we are to seek for godly laws to be established. And we see that multiple times in scripture because God's law is ultimately where we get everything. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this basis of civil law and society. So if you would hang with me, I'm going to cite a few passages of scripture that are important to our foundation here. First of all, we know that God's law is part of natural revelation. If you look at Romans 1:18 and 32, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Though they know God, this is in verse 32, I'm jumping down, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Notice this language. They know God's righteous decree. This is speaking of non-believers, and he's saying these are people who know what is right, and they are rejecting it, and God is holding them responsible for it. If we look down to Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, it says, For all, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This is a reference to the Old Testament law, right? the law that God gave to his people. Uh, for it is, the, uh, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles do not have the law... By nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Notice there's this language of God has put his put conscience in men, and seems to have even written something on their heart related to the law of God that makes sure that even if you do not have the Old Testament law that was delivered to the Jews, even if you don't have that, you know what is right and what is wrong because God has weaved it into the way he created everything and put it in you because you're created in his image. This is how he built it. It's how he made it. It's how it's designed. Ongoing, if we want to read uh, back, not back, uh, well, yes, back, back in Deuteronomy 4. Uh, hold on, there's another one. Yeah, Deuteronomy 4. What's interesting then is God's law seems to be about more than just doing the right thing, that there seems to be glory that is brought to him and blessing that's brought to a people when they obey it. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8, it says, See, I have taught you. Now, Deuteronomy it uh, means second law. It's where Moses is essentially re-explaining the law that was already given in Exodus um, and in Leviticus, and he's giving some details, he's giving some sermon notes, and he says this, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's. Notice peoples. He's talking about other peoples. Who, the, uh, who then, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that, when, ha, that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law I sent before you today. Notice, the idea of the Old Testament law, and I would say of the universal law that God has weaved into his 
creation is not just, ah, it's so egregious and it's so difficult. Yeah, you know what? We can't follow it all because we have a sin nature. But it's not this overly burdensome, uh, useless thing. Everybody can look at it and say, yeah, you know what? That's really fair. That's really just. That's really good. In fact, it's so just. I want to live there under that. Now, again, I need to clarify. There is no sense in which the United States of America is somehow a new Israel. That's, That's not it. There's no unique covenant with our country apart from other countries. I remember growing up and thinking you could only be saved if you were in America. And then I was like, missions, why do we do that? I guess other people get saved too, right? We don't want to give that idea, but can we just say that just as when the people of God in the Old Testament could obey God's law and bring him glory and blessing to themselves and make the other nations say, I mean, that's a good place to live. Um, So we can do that as we obey God. Carrying on. Uh, Here's what's interesting also. God does not just hold, I'm getting somewhere with this, so hang with me. God does not just hold the Jews responsible for the law, interestingly enough. Uh, In Leviticus 18, 24 through 27, uh, God says this. This is another, Leviticus is another law book, right? He says, "Do uh, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these things, this is relating to laws he's already mentioned, all these laws that were broken, he says, by all these things, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Notice what he's saying. I've given you this law. Guess what? The people that were living in Canaan, notice this is as they're getting ready to get to Canaan, he's like, those people have been committing these abominations, and I'm punishing them for it. And so some people were like, wait a minute, they didn't have the law. And God's like, you know, they know what's right and wrong because I've put it in their heart. They're rebelling against me. I'm kicking them out of there. He uses this language, I'm making the land vomit them out. And he's like, and guess what? Just because I've given you the law doesn't automatically give you privileged status. You better obey it or I'll throw you out too, as we know that God sometimes did. Right? Uh, Deuteronomy 30, 17 through 18 says, But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live in the land uh, that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. Notice what's happening here. God even says in the Levitical passage here, I'm holding you responsible to obey the law, and guess what? You better make laws for even the sojourner. Even the non-Jew who comes through your land has to obey these laws because, guess what, they're good laws and they're for everybody. Hang on, because I know some of you are probably going to ask some questions like, wait a minute, what about ceremonial laws? Or is this Judaism here? No, 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 hang on. We're going to explain that. But everybody with me so far? Cool, cool, cool. All right, nobody's throwing eggs or rocks or anything like that. Um, I've cited Romans 2, 9 through 11 and Jude 14. Uh, through 15, just to provide some New Testament reiteration of this, that God holds both believers and non-believers accountable to the civil aspects of his law. You will notice something else, that there is this language that God's law is to some degree for all of the nations. 
In fact, in Proverbs 13:43, and this is a proverb, right? It's, it's a wise saying. He's saying, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The language is, when you do the right things of God, it's a blessing to a nation. And you don't have to be Israel to be blessed when you obey God. Similar, you all will recall, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we have what we call the Great Commission Passage. And rightly, the emphasis on the Great Commission passage is the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is saying, go and make disciples. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Really cool. That's, that's, I, I don't want to segment it out too much to say we rightly give the right attention to that. But have you noticed how easy it is to set, for people to say, like, oh, just say this prayer. You're saved now. Now go and do your thing. That would mean I would only be about half of the Great Commission passage fulfilled, probably not even that much. Because Jesus goes on to say, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Now, he's saying, go to all of the nations, make disciples, teach them to obey my commands. That's pretty simple, but it's there. So I know, I know right now, probably some of us are like, all right, Dan, I got big questions. Because there's a whole lot of emphasis in the New Testament about how we don't have to obey the law to be saved. I would say absolutely right. So I'm going to clarify something. I will also say I preached a sermon on the law. Um, It was called, let's see, uh, The Law, Its Role and Purpose. I preached that, I don't know, a few months ago. If you want to go back and listen to that, it'll give much more detail on this. Uh, but I'm just going to make sure you understand a few points before we get to the, like, the main, main point. This is all really long intro. As you know, long intro means short sermon. So hold on. Um, so first of all, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it clear that we are absolutely not saved by obeying the law. First of all, you can't. You're never going to be, like, you've already vote, broken it so many times. James talks about you disobey one part, you've violated the whole law. You can't obey the whole law. And even if you could, it wouldn't save you. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, and as we were saying in catechism today, perfectly obeyed, sacrificed on our behalf, gave us his righteousness when he took on our sin, right, and then paid for that sin. This is how we have salvation in Christ, right? It is totally by faith, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. You obeying the law gains you nothing in merit, nothing in merit. We reiterate that you obeying the law does not get you any more saved or any less saved. That's not how it works, making that really clear. I'm saying this because when we teach on stuff like this, this is what people like me get accused of. Like, you're trying to say that salvation is by works. Absolutely not. Not even a little bit. But I think all of us understand that when a new believer gets saved, we don't tell them, Jesus paid for it. Go ahead and murder. Go ahead and commit adultery. You know, go ahead and mutilate that baby. Go ahead and do whatever. Like, we don't do that because we understand that God's law still has a moral factor. And we also don't become anarchists that say, hey, let's get rid of every form of government and let the murderers go free. Now, some people are doing that, rightly. Or not rightly, but we right, we know about that. So understanding, i just reiterating, salvation is by grace through faith. What I'm telling you right now has nothing to do with making you more saved or less saved has everything to do with bringing God glory and recognizing his kingship and living peaceably and blessed. Cool? All right, so second point. We should obey God's law unless he specifies otherwise. You might remember that in Genesis chapter 9, God says to Noah and his family, any living thing, 
other than humans. Kill it and eat it. Enjoy it. Party on. God allows all meat to be eaten. When he is giving the law in to the Israelites, he has a few specific ceremonial things like not eating pork. And then you might recall, so it's interesting, there was a time when it was allowed, so this is different than the universal natural law, and then there was a time for a certain people, God said, not, no, no, no pork, right? It doesn't give a lot of specifications as to why. You could argue that there's some cleanliness things and some other stuff. A lot of people don't eat pork because they're like, I don't think it's as healthy as whatever, it's fine. But you will recall in Acts 10, chapter, Acts Chapter 10, verse 15, God puts Peter into a vision. He lowers a sheep from heaven, and it has all these animals, including some unclean ones. And he says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, God, I'm not going to eat something that's unclean. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Now, there was a purpose in this because he's trying to say, you can hang out with Gentiles. Go for it. Like, that was the main. But notice, he's saying, it's okay to eat pork. Right? And so I, I eat bacon without feeling guilty. Um, praise God for it. I mean, I do, um, right? Because that seems to be something that God has said, like, I'm, I'm lifting this right now. Just as for my children, I might say, hey, don't do that, don't do that. And then another time I'm like, do that, right? Um, th- there are times where there are certain things where it's like, okay, now you can do this. We understand this, cool. The other thing is that we understand that the sacrificial and ceremonial aspects of the law have been overridden in the new covenant and they're no longer applying. The entirety of the book of Hebrews gets at this, right? We don't need to make sacrifices anymore, nor could we because the temple's been destroyed. But we don't need to make sacrifices anymore because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that all of them were pointing to. Everybody with me on that? Cool. So because when people are like, well, why are you saying certain parts of the law and not others? This is why. All right, everybody's with me, I think. All right. All right. So there's another thing. The apostles believed the moral commands of the law were essential as a guide for right living and that the civil and punitive aspects of the law were just as valid as ever. We see this in 1 Timothy 1, 5 through 11. We're getting here. All right. So you will recall, and I'm not going to go all the way through Romans 13, but you recognize in Romans 13, actually I'll cite part of it. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist has been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and whoever resists will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who has authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Let me just ask a very basic question. I don't have servants. I can't really afford them, right? But let's say that there is a house where there is a master, and he has servants who are doing his job. Does the servant, or who are doing the care of the home, does the servant dictate the rules of how the house is to be cleaned? No, the master does, because it's his house, and the servants do what he says. So do the civil magistrates that God has placed over us decide what is right and what is wrong? No, they don't, right? Because God has given his law, Jesus is king, and he says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. It's pretty simple. God has decided what is right and wrong. Civil magistrates are his servants, and when they disobey him, it's our duty to disobey them, to obey him. But in general, we should be obeying them, brothers and sisters, because God really has put them there for our good. Please don't hear me saying that like we should just rebel against all of them. In fact, keep in mind, what the French Revolution did was rebel against authority of all kinds, including God's. 
the American War for Independence actually cited the law and said, King George III, you are violating your law and God's law, and we're asking you to obey it. We're not the ones violating it here. You are. Please get back on board. And they petitioned, they appealed, and when there was nothing else they could do, they defied that tyrant. Carrying on. This is why you will hear us use the phrase lex rex, or the law and the king. Uh, Samuel Rutherford wrote a book by this name. I will recommend it. But the idea is Christ is king. He has given us his law, and thus we are to obey his law, and any civil magistrate is to enforce that. This brings us to our primary text. Don't worry, we're almost there. In 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, now we know that the law is good. Now, this is the same Paul who is saying, hey, those Judaizers who are saying you have to get circumcised in order to be saved, I wish they would emasculate themselves. That's that Paul. He spoke pretty strongly, and a lot of people are like, Paul must have hated the law. But this is, he hated Judaizers who made you think that you had to obey the law to be saved. But that same guy, inspired by God in both passages, says, we know that the law is good if it's used lawfully. Like, when you use the law as it is designed, as God has commanded in it, it works out pretty great, guys. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What's the language here? It's that we need the law to restrain evil. Because there are murderers, there are enslavers, there are perjurers, there are liars, um, there are homosexuals, there are other forms of sexual immorality, there's people who strike their parents, all of these things, and he's like, we can't allow this to go on. The law needs to be used lawfully to restrain evil. He seems here to be affirming the civil use of the Old Testament law. Make sense? Some would disagree. They were like, no, he's just talking about the moral things. And I'm like, I mean, I'm, I can go around talking about how moral it is, but unless there's punitive punishments, I don't see how it's useful for anything other than evangelism. And I will say that. Or for me growing in my faith. But he's just saying here, he's like, this is for the bad guys. We need the civil law for the bad guys to hold them back. Okay, all this making sense? All right. Speaking of bad things, we're going to talk about issue one for a second. Um, I think I need to just walk this through a little bit. Uh, so issue one, uh, the idea here is it will require any proposed amendment to the Constitution of the state of Ohio to receive an approval of at least 60%. That's just a stronger majority, still less than what happens at the national level. It protects our Constitution a little bit. Cool? And I think that's a good thing. We just went over how it's law that is what protects us, not democratic process. Could reiterate that a long time. Uh, French Revolution was democratic, right? It's not to say that we can never vote on things, but the idea is that only within a structured system of laws. And if we allow a simple majority to change laws that easy, that's always historically been bad. And I know we like to think of like, oh, democracy. I actually want to stop people when they say, I love our democracy. I'm like, we're not supposed to be a democracy. We're a republic. We're supposed to be governed by laws. That's how it works. We have democratic aspects in this. Praise God, that's fine. But within the context of a law. So I would say this is a good thing. The other thing is that um, it's going to require that if there is a petition, a petition for any type of a constitutional amendment or so forth, they're going to have to have 5% of the electors from each county. That means 
You can't have Columbus getting all of their liberal people to decide that they're going to put this law up and then them vote it in without people in Lorain County or whatever county, Huron County, Erie County, being able to have a say in it. Make sense? This provides, provides some protection. Cool? All right, so um, it's going to require a certain number of signatures, the whole thing. I will say there is nothing in Scripture that specifically outlines that issue one is godly. Can I say that? But there is a lot in Scripture that affirms the idea that laws should match God's law and that we should be governed by laws rather than merely by democratic process. Can I say, though, there is a bigger issue here, and I will just acknowledge that the pro-abortion crowd has put forth this other bill that is a constitutional amendment that will do some key things that are really bad. Um, it will make murdering babies in Ohio a constitutional right, using that, putting that in parentheses. Uh, effectively, there would be nothing legally we could do to stop abortion in any circumstance. Uh, it does not give any rules for children, so that means, I'll be very plain, a terrible abuser, 35-year-old man, say, could abuse a child, get her pregnant, take her to a Planned Parenthood, terminate the pregnancy, thus destroying both that life, but also hiding the evidence of what he has done. By this constitutional amendment, that will be allowed, and we will not be able to do jack about it, at least not jack within the law. All right? Second, it mentions reproductive decisions should not be limited. That is vague language, brothers and sisters, because a whole lot of things are tied to reproduction, not just the use of contraceptives. Uh, there are many who are concerned, as am I, that reproductive decisions could be things such as gender transition surgeries. Notice there is no age, there is no protection, there is no parental right. This will be bedlam. It will be child mutilation and child murder. And we, as I have mentioned, are the tip of the spear in trying to block this here in Ohio. And so I'm just going to tell you, the pro-aborts are like, look at you guys. You're putting this constitutional amendment up just to block us. And I'm like, heck yeah, we are. Because you want to murder babies. And you want to mutilate children. And we will do whatever it takes short of sin to stop that. And so yeah, we are. I don't, I, I don't care if you think that we're pulling a fast one. I'll do whatever it takes. I, I recognize I'm being recorded. I need to just be very clear. I will do whatever it takes, short of sin, to stop children from being murdered and mutilated. And I hope you understand what I'm saying there. We should do whatever it takes, short of sin. I would encourage you to look up Ehud or look up a guy named Phineas. Phineas is an interesting guy. And sometimes God blesses unique things there. All right? So why is this wicked? Murdering babies is always wrong. Simple as that. Um, and then there is a little bit of language on fetal viability in there that they seem to have tried to thrown the kind of pro-life a bone. They're like, oh, fetal viability. Can I just tell you, if you go to Planned Parenthood, they are always going to find a way to say that the fetus is not viable. Little side note, fetus simply means baby. It's Latin for baby. If someone is arguing with you about abortion, make them say baby. You're like, fetus just means baby. That's why, why are you talking Latin when we're speaking English right now? Pull them in and force them to say the word baby because that's what it is. Anyway, uh, hopefully you all are hanging on with this. You guys with me? Yes. I, know I'm, I know I'm pushing on something here, but this is important. 
All right, so a couple of things. Bad laws are an abomination. We talked about how righteousness exalts a nation. Bad laws are an abomination. Uh, in Proverbs 20, 23, it says, Unequal weights and measures, or unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. The idea is if I have laws that protect some people from murder and not others, that the very existence of that law is an abomination to God. Uh, and I know this is unpopular. I preached on this a year or so ago. But it's unpopular because there are laws out there that protect you from getting an abortion for Down syndrome. So the idea is, well, if your baby has Down syndrome, that can't be the reason you get an abortion. But if your baby is going to be healthy and not have Down syndrome, kill it all you want. I love people with Down syndrome. I, I don't want them to get aborted either. But it's unequal weights and measures to say we're going to protect children with Down syndrome and not protect children that don't have Down syndrome. You understand? God calls that an abomination. God hates abominations. That's why he calls them abominations. All right? Isaiah 10, 1 through 3 says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. This is exactly language of children who are facing abortion. Their fathers have likely abandoned them, although we're in a time now when women are getting abortions and not even telling the dad. Sometimes I'm like, you know, I, some of these guys would step up if we got them to. But I'm just going to tell you, God proclaims woe on people who make unjust laws like the one that is supposed to be on the ballot in November. He hates that. I would say there is a sense in which God at times talks about hating the wicked. Of course we say that he loves when you repent and believe, praise God, but he's, he will pour out wrath on baby murderers. And I'm telling you, I don't want the land be made unclean that I live in. The language of blood guilt in the Old Testament is one is like, I even said, like, I'm vomiting these people out of here because the abominations that they committed... I don't want America to get vomited out of this good and precious land. But guess what? God just might be doing that. We have to stop this. Anyway, um, another little side note. Psalm 91, or 93, 20 through 23 says, Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? Notice the language here is they're making laws that are unjust and unlawful. He says, Can you ally with those people? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. This is exactly baby murder. This is exactly abortion. And he is saying, God is saying in his word, you think you can be allies with these people? You can't. I, I want to be really, like I know we're supposed to be kind. And I, I will always say, preach the gospel. I want the enemies of God to repent and believe. But if I'm allied with God, that person is my enemy. And I hope, I want them to change side. But, like, I'm not going to be their ally. I'm not going to play nice and say, oh, you know, I don't, I'm sorry it hurt your feelings when Roe was overturned. No. I'm, I'm going to celebrate their loss, and I'm going to push hard against them. It says, but the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God, the rock of my refuge, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. So this is our prayer. I'm, I, I know this is imprecatory. It is, and it's biblical. That God will wipe out those people who do these things. So be on his team. Pray for that wiping out. Pray for their repentance. 
So some key things here as we're finishing up. When it comes to biblical civics for Christians, we are commanded to love God and love people in Mark 12. That is the basis of the whole of the law. We see it in Deuteronomy 4 as well. Love God and love people. Always do that. And again, I'm talking about being our enemies, but be kind and gentle and preach the gospel to the person who is the enemy of God. That does not mean that you should just be soft with them on everything. Hold the line and keep proclaiming the gospel to them as much as you can. Make disciples and teach God's law. Uh, that's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Micah 6, 8 teaches us to seek justice. Proverbs 24 tells us to rescue the innocent. Proverbs 20, 23 and Isaiah 10 remind us that our, God, our, our laws should be godly laws. We should push for godly laws and we should not be allies with those who make evil laws. And then in fact, Acts 5 and Judges 3, we should defy tyrants when it's necessary. It's biblical, it's good. Um, I'll just reiterate Proverbs 24, 11 through 12. It says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your souls know it? And we, will he not repay man according to his work? Um, I... I I can't just say, oh, you know what, I'm not a politician, or I'm not really political. Um, I have to take the stand, and God knows my heart. So I'm just going to speak plainly. It might be illegal. I'm told it's not illegal. I think we should go and vote yes on issue one. Um, It's August 8th. It's coming up soon. I think we should vote on it. And if by some terrible measure it doesn't pass, and this wicked law that is an abomination is put on the ballot in November vote against it, put up a sign, lovingly, gently argue with your neighbors, reason with them, because this is, this is as big as it gets short of, short of the gospel, brothers and sisters. We're talking about murdering babies. Anyway, so some recommended books here. I'll just say I like to do this. I will encourage you to read By This Standard, and that is not by Doug Wilson. I've changed, I didn't change that, I'm sorry. Uh, by This Standard is by Greg Bonson. Highly recommend that book. Great book. It goes through the use, the proper use of God's law in civil realms. It's a good book. Highly recommend it. I would also recommend Lex Rex, Lex Rex by Samuel, excuse me, Samuel Rutherford. It's a classic. And um, I will also say we should all read The Divine Right of Resistance by Philip Kaiser. It is a wonderfully well-written, very short book that does a wonderful biblical exegesis of how we're to respond to tyranny. And he doesn't go crazy. He doesn't just say, like, ah, heck with all these guys. He's very systematic on how we need to respond, and I think it's really good. All that said, I'm going to finish this out here. Um, You guys understand? I recognize I I, I pushed hard on this issue because I believe it's important. Um, And I I hope you understand. If you have any questions, you have any concerns, talk to me. My bigger concern also is that if there's misunderstanding on the law, I want to talk that through. Um, because I don't want you to think that, like, oh, no, I ate pork today. And that's not what we're getting at here. That's, that's not even applicable here. Cool? All right, let's pray. Father God, um, you are so righteous. And, um, Lord, I will confess that I have become so discouraged with the fact that it, it, it often does not even seem like our voting does anything. I'll say even, Lord, as I preach the gospel and so few respond It gets discouraging. And I'm like, oh, Lord, are you just bringing your judgment? And maybe that's what you're doing. May we not lose heart. May we not grow weary in well-doing. And these things that you promised in Isaiah to do to those who decree iniquitous decrees, will you do it soon to protect children? Give us wisdom. Lord, I need wisdom. 
Um, uh, we're going to vote. We're going to try to do what we can here. If there's something else we're to do, Lord, show us, tell us, give us clarity. Uh, I can at times feel paralyzed just not knowing what to do. Uh, Lord, would you direct us, give us opportunity, and may we be obedient. May your kingdom come and will be done as you taught us to pray, here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Who is on for gospel? Go ahead, honey. Um, so I just, I was trying to think uh, something.